Welcome to the Thursday Arts Preview, where the P is parenthetical. I'm your host, E.J. Ionelli. Naomi Rogers went from an ensemble member in the Broadway adaptation of Disney's Frozen to playing one of the biggest pop stars of the 20th century. Later in the program, we'll hear from Naomi about what it was like to make that leap and why it's bringing her to Spokane next week as part of the Best of Broadway series. Before we get too far ahead on the calendar, let's look at what's happening tomorrow. In the evening, author Andrea Lankford is appearing at Auntie's Bookstore to read from and talk about her new book, Trail of the Lost. Andrea is a former National Park Service ranger, and Trail of the Lost is about her search to find three missing hikers who disappeared from the Pacific Crest Trail, or PCT, over a span of about two years. The quest became something more than simply determining their fates, as it brought her into contact with a community of talented amateur sleuths, con artists, social media search parties, and other missing hiker cases. I recently spoke with Andrea by phone during a previous stop on her book tour for Trail of the Lost, and we began by discussing what the primary catalyst was for embarking on this search in the first place. Well, I was formerly a park ranger for the National Park Service, and in 1995, I was a supervisory park ranger tasked with finding a young man who had gone missing on the North Rim. And he was 20 years old, unemployed, and living in a friend's apartment. And I coordinated the search effort for days, and we threw everything at it, helicopters, dogs, ground pounders, and I failed. We didn't find him, and I had to communicate to the father that it was getting to be time to wind down the search. That failure haunted me for decades. And so fast forward to 2017 when I learned about Chris Sylvia, a 28-year-old, who was unemployed and living in a friend's apartment, who went missing on the Pacific Crest Trail, it reminded me of that earlier case. And I couldn't let it go. Um, Chris Sylvia went missing in 2015, so he'd been missing two years, and the authorities appeared to have given up. So I contacted his family and talked to his mother on the phone and asked for her blessing to open a pro bono investigation into his case. And she thanked me for taking an interest, and I promised to get her some answers. And I don't want to get ahead of ourselves, but that initial case, that was Gabriel Parker. And you were fascinated by these similarities between Chris Sylvia and Gabriel Parker. And then that opened up two additional cases, one for Chris Fowler, who had the nickname Sherpa, and then David O'Sullivan. And these were all three young men who went missing on the on the PCT. Um, can you talk about how these cases kind of unfolded for you and how they became interlinked? Yeah, well, as soon as I started investigating the Chris Sylvia disappearance, I started to join the Facebook hiker groups and the Facebook missing hiker groups. And that's how I found out about David O'Sullivan and Chris Fowler. And it was just uncanny to me that we'd have, we'd have three young men, one each year, three years in a row, who would go missing from the same trail, the Pacific Crest Trail. And despite numerous search efforts, no one was able to find them. And that just really compelled me to dig deeper into that. Now, through that is how I met someone named Kathy Tarr and some other amateur searchers who were equally driven to try to solve the puzzle. Like me, something about these cases triggered their compassion And Kathy Tarr and Morgan Clements in particular, and the three of us just really devoted an extraordinary amount of time to 
our investigations and also physically traveling to these sites to search for these young men. Part of our motivation is I think we got close to the family members, especially Sally Fowler, who's a prominent character in the book. You become even more driven and obsessed with trying to find their loved one for them so they could move on. Yeah, and the the psychological dynamics here are really incredible. One of the sort of recurring themes in the book is people saying that they were grateful for the closure that they got from having a body discovered, whereas with these cases, that conclusive and definitive ending didn't really come. Yeah, it's a horrible situation to be in. One term for this is called ambiguous loss. And so you don't know if your loved one is dead or alive, if something happened to them, what happened to them. There are also logistical headaches because there's no proof that they have died. So you've you've got issues with their property and their estate. And emotionally, it's a very hard place for the families to be in. Yeah, there was a moment in the book, I think it's with Chris Fowler's case, when Sally gets a call and they say that they've discovered a spine. And this actually gives her hope that it could be Chris's backbone that they've discovered. And it's it's very tragic and very kind of morbid, but it's um, it's very easy, I think, to empathize with how, you know, you just want that uh, that definitive ending to things. Yeah, it brings up a lot of mixed up, uh, unusual feelings for the family members every time there's a lead or when they learn of another missing person being found. And then your search for these three hikers also puts you on the trail of other missing hikers, uh, like John Sturkey is one of them. Can you talk about some of those tangential searches that you ended up getting involved with in your quest to find what happened to these three hikers? Yes, when you get in a group like this, and especially on Facebook, it becomes a small world, uh, and you learn about the other cases, and you can't help to be intrigued about those cases as well. And John Sturkey went missing in the same area that David O'Sullivan went missing. So I worked the case a little bit, but Kathy Tarr joined up with John Sturkey's wife, Teresa, And the authorities weren't doing a good enough job. So those two went out there and coordinated their own volunteer searches for Teresa's husband. And they found clues that leaded to helping the authorities find his body. Yeah, and that's another interesting dynamic that arises is the friction between amateur efforts to find missing hikers and then the so-called professional efforts and how there is a disparity in resources, but also there can be sometimes a disparity in their commitment to the cases because the professionals have so much on their plate and so many cases to deal with, whereas the amateur circles are able to really zero in on individual cases. Yeah, yeah, you outlined that really well. I do have some sympathy for the authorities. They are busy and they have a lot of problems that they have to deal with. Uh, I think one thing professional searchers can learn from my book is to maybe have more respect for amateur searchers and learn how to effectively and safely collaborate with non-government entities on these searches. Uh, So this, the authorities should learn to work with groups like this because we all want the same thing. We want to find out what happened and help these families bring their loved one home. And I think that overlap sometimes leads to them consulting maybe the same resources and not always for the better because the desperation 
that is involved in some of these efforts to find the missing hikers that creates fertile ground for con artists and opportunists. So you do have some folks who claim clairvoyant abilities. Um, can you talk about some of these maybe less scrupulous folks who really prey on searchers who are in this position? Yes, this desperation uh, motivates people to turn to alternative search methods, I'll call them. And that's okay as long as it doesn't cause any harm and as long as you know what you're getting. And when someone is using the guise of science to sell a service and is inaccurate in portraying how successful that technique is, I don't think that's a good thing for the family to use or law enforcement. In some cases, law enforcement are using these devices that probably do not work. So just if you're going to use an alternative technique, just know what you're getting into. And lastly, I want to talk about something else that the Trail of the Lost kind of drives home, which are the dangers on the Pacific Crest Trail, and indeed any hiking trail, but the PCT in particular, a lot of things that I think folks don't recognize, you know, if they aren't seasoned trail hikers. So, for example, there are some really dodgy folks that kind of lurk on these trails and, you know, help themselves to some of the free resources that are made available. There are actual cults that kind of stalk the trails looking for new recruits. Can you talk about some of the other dangers that may lie in wait for unsuspecting hikers. Yeah, you know, the trail siren call uh, also, you know, attracts somebody who wants to hide from society for whatever reason. And some of those people have bring bad intentions to the trail. There is a kidnapper in the story who actually kidnaps a PCT hiker for a while. And, and eventually she escapes. You know, there's also some people who went on uh, homicidal sprees and use the PCT as a travel corridor to hide from law enforcement. The trail is mostly safe. I backpack solo myself, and most everybody out there is good. But if you're going to hike the trail, be aware there are some bad actors out there, and so just keep your eyes and ears open. Well, Andrea, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to tease out some of these details and some of these stories that are in Trail of the Lost. Yeah, thank you, EJ. Thanks for having me on. That was Andrea Lankford, author of Trail of the Lost, the relentless search to bring home the missing hikers of the Pacific Crest Trail. Her tour in support of the book brings her to Auntie's Bookstore tomorrow, that's Friday, September 15th, at 7 p.m. For more information about the event, visit auntiesbooks.com. And for more information about the author, her website is at andrealankford.com. This coming Sunday, September 17th, the String Orchestra of the Rockies kicks off its new season at the University of Montana in Missoula. Our own Jim Tevenin sat down in the studio yesterday with the String Orchestra's artistic director to talk about the orchestra and what it has in store this season.
We're very pleased to have in our KPBX studios Maria Larianoff, the artistic director of the String Orchestra of the Rockies, who begin their new concert series this weekend. Welcome again, Maria. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's, as I said, delightful to have you. This is, for those who are not terribly familiar with the, the orchestra, if you could tell us just a bit about its background. The String Orchestra of the Rockies, which is entering its 39th season, is a conductorless 15-member string ensemble. We draw players from all over Montana, the top players from all the best orchestras, and we also draw a few from as far as Seattle and Ellensburg. And we come together four times a year, and we rehearse for a weekend, and we put together a concert, and we invite world-class soloists to be our guest artists. It's funny how you kind of lose track of these things, but you've been (laughs) with the orchestra how long now? This is my fifth season as artistic director. Very good. Well, let's get right into it because you are opening your 2023-2024 concert series this weekend, performing at the University of Montana in Missoula. The piece that you're doing on this opening program by Franz Schubert concerns itself with an entirely different instrument. Let's start there. Tell us a little bit about the arpeggione. (laughs) The arpeggione. You know, I think the arpeggione would maybe have just been forgotten if it hadn't been for this amazing work that was written for it. And the work has been now played on cello, on viola, on double bass, and it's it's an amazing, amazing work. I don't know a lot about the arpeggioni. I don't know any of the other repertoire for the arpeggioni. But I know that this particular piece is just, I think it's probably as beloved as the Trout Quintet. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the arpeggioni, uh, it is a fretted instrument. Yes. Um, tuned like a guitar, yes. but it's an instrument that you bow instead of pluck. That's that's the mm-hmm. whole point of it. Needless to say, it was a kind of a, an evolutionary dead end. That <laughs> uh, it, Its option was not picked up by history. But we still have this wonderful piece by Franz Schubert, his sonata uh, for arpeggione. What instrument to realize it on? Well, tell us which instrument we're going to hear. Okay. Well, we are really fortunate that Cynthia Phelps, who is the principal violist of the New York Philharmonic, also a professor at the Juilliard School and a member of the New York Philharmonic String Quartet, she has a free week in her schedule, and she's coming out to Missoula to perform as our soloist in the arpeggioni. The string orchestra arrangement is by a Bulgarian composer, Dobrinka Tabakova, And it's a charming arrangement. It really showcases the viola beautifully and uh, also showcases the orchestra as well. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a wonderful, wonderful program. And again, this is going to be happening this Sunday afternoon. Yes. I'm going to mention that again in a moment. At the University of Montana in the Music Recital Hall in Missoula. This program takes place at 4 in the afternoon, which is this year a change for the string orchestra. Yes, we were hearing from our musicians and from our audience members that our standard 7.30 uh, performance time on Sundays was becoming a bit late for people. For, For parents with young children, it's a school night. 
for uh, older people in our audience, it's simply, it's very late to be coming home around 10.30 in the evening after a concert. So we did a year-long survey, and the results were overwhelmingly in favor of a 4 p.m. concert start time. So we're, we are moving to 4 p.m. now on Sundays. All right, very good. And uh, I'm sure especially for families with children who'd like to introduce the, the kids to yes. music for strings, that is a, a, a better bet than, uh, yes. than the evening time. So Exactly. Yeah, very good for you. For those who are close enough to uh, to get tickets or uh, actually attend these programs, or those who are further away uh, mm-hmm. in our listening area who are curious about the orchestra, want to find out more, where do we go? We have a really comprehensive website at sormt.org. It has all of our programs. It has information about our soloists. It has recordings of past performances, interviews with our artists, and of course at SOR, student outreach is a huge part of our mission. We have uh, the Stockman Bank Masterclass video series where we actually coach and show performances of UM students in masterclasses. All right. Well, um, thank you for the great work you do, both with your musicians in the orchestra and also the the outreach that the String Orchestra of the Rockies has to the uh, String Orchestra of the Rockies has with uh, the community in Missoula and surrounding areas. Mm So best wishes for uh, uh, just a smashing opening uh, uh, performance, and uh, I hope that we can chat again in a little bit more detail on those programs that will be coming up in the season. Thanks, Jim. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Jim Tevinen speaking there with String Orchestra of the Rockies Artistic Director and Violinist Maria Larianoff about the orchestra's new season, which launches this Sunday, September 17th. That concert, titled Sophisticated String Sonatas, features Cynthia Phelps on viola and is preceded by a free masterclass. That's at the University of Montana Recital Hall in Missoula, Montana. More details are on the String Orchestra of the Rockies website at sormt.org. Last, but certainly not least, we come to the life of Tina Turner. Tina, the music icon, passed away earlier this year, but her legacy lives on in the form of Tina, the Tina Turner musical, which comes to Spokane next week. Naomi Rogers is one of the actors keeping that legacy alive by playing Tina herself in this jukebox musical about the singer's life. How she got that prestigious gig is a really interesting story, and as Rogers explained to me by phone, it's one that begins in the ensemble of a nationally touring production of Disney's Frozen. That was my start right out of college, and I had did a regional gig before um, I got booked for Frozen. 
But when I went and did that show, I already knew I had Frozen coming. So being prepared for that and kind of just jumping into that and doing that for a really long time and doing understudy work and ensemble work, it was a lot of fun. Being able to put on those gorgeous costumes, it was a beautiful show. And from Frozen, did you then go immediately on to Tina or were there other roles in between? I actually went straight into Tina. They snatched me up from uh, Frozen. They did. That is a huge leap. Yeah, Uh, it is. So did they headhunt you or did you audition for this while you were part of Frozen? I auditioned for this by like just a weird, you know, text message from my agent you know, they were saying, you think that this is your thing? Is this in your wheelhouse? Could you do this? And I was like, I don't know. I guess so. And they, they said that, that I had an offer for it. And they gave me the day that I needed to send in a tape, sent it in. And the next day, they contact my agents and they let them know that they want to have me come all the way to New York. <laughs> this was like a Wednesday, Thursday that week. And they want me to come to New York on Monday. And I'm already in, you know, Fort Lauderdale doing Frozen. So, you know, I have to buy tickets and flights and things like that just to get over and a place to stay. So I did that. And um, that's basically how I got the role. Wow, that is a huge honor and just kind of a whirlwind audition process, too. It really was. It was so quick, and I was already, you know, working at the time, so it was a lot, but it was such a blessing. It was so much fun to do as well. Now, I have to ask, were you a fan of Tina Turner's music prior to this? I was familiar with What's Love Got to Do With It because of the uh, movie with Angela Bassett. And uh, I always listen to the music in a movie, but I've never heard any of the songs like I do now. Like, I, I love the songs that I know now even more than I did the songs that I thought I knew. And that's a really cool trajectory, because often the story is, you know, someone says, oh, I'm a super fan. I really, really wanted this gig. I used to sing these songs in the shower and couldn't dream of anything other than this. But to come to this as kind of a blank slate and then to come into it and then develop that appreciation for her music, because I'm sure you found a, a lot to love. Oh, my gosh. I learned so much about her that has also changed me as a person. Um, I think it is, like, so important to understand that Tina changed her life based off of what she wanted to do and the choices that she wanted to make. And it's even more of an honor to be able to tell that story and to, you know, be that person even in my own life. It challenges me. (laughs) She does. She's an inspiration. Can you give me an example or examples from her life that you've looked at and you think, man, this is really something to admire? I think it is beautiful that Tina found love and decided to live her life the way that she wanted to live it when it came down to love. Um, In the musical, you know, it wasn't in the times of where, you know, people were really accepting of interracial couples and things like that. And so for Tina to, you know, 
find the love of her life and not care what anybody has to say is very inspirational. And she just moves away and goes and lives the rest of her life with the love of her life. But also he supported her in her career and, and with her dreams and things like that. So she lived a life that was full, you know, and, and it's one of the most beautiful love stories that I know. And here you are embodying this figure on stage. When you're portraying Tina, what are some of the qualities that you try to convey to the audience, you know, that you try to really telegraph? I really want people to understand that Tina is so funny. Like, she's (laughs) a hoot and a holler, truly. Tina is someone who is like your next door neighbor. Every time I'm like leaving the stage door and people are outside and they, you know, we say hi to everybody that comes and sees us. People always tell me, they're like, Tina was my cousin's next door neighbor or Tina came and was best friends with my next door neighbor. Or they were, and I'm just like, Tina literally was just everyone's friends. So I've tried to let the audience know that, you know, she's relatable. She's also an amazing person and extremely, extremely talented and a rock and roll legend as well. So it's just that power and also being able to be so friendly and so joyful and so full of life. That's one thing that I love about her. And I try to portray that. Yeah. And that's kind of tricky to pull off to be both the superstar and embody these superstar qualities, but also be down to earth and relatable at the same time. Uh, Exactly. And talk to me about this musical. Is it sort of a greatest hits type thing, or do we really kind of get into the meat of Tina's life? Basically, this musical is both of those things combined. So you have greatest hits, and you also have the nitty-gritty. You have the the meaty parts of her life that are shown on stage. Um, So what happens is Tina's music and her whole entire catalog is put into this musical and intertwined into each scene and it tells a story about her life so basically every song that she's ever written or she's ever you know sang we put it in the musical and it has something to do with each part of a scene or each part of her life and it transitions and it's a beautiful transition it's so well put katori hall wrote this script beautifully and um yeah And so you came to this production as kind of a neophyte, somebody who wasn't super familiar with Tina's work. For this musical, you're going to have the super fans who show up and want to see kind of their idol um, represented on stage. But you're also going to have folks who, like you, only have passing familiarity with Tina's music. Is the musical going to satisfy both of those crowds? Yes, it is. It truly will. Um, This is a talkback musical is what I like to say, because people definitely are vocal and we love that about people when they come and see the show, because it really is that and it really gives everyone else on stage really good energy. So we expect everyone to, you know, come and enjoy the work that we're doing because it is joyful. You know, this is Tina's greatest hits that people are going to listen to every single song. So this is going to be a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun, I promise. (laughs) And finally, in your cast notes, you say this is for Broom. Who's Broom? That is my grandmother. She passed away um, about 10 years ago, and she uh, was a huge part of my family. And uh, 
my mom, my mom always was having conversations with my grandma about what to do with me. She's my grandma was like, she's a lot. And, you know, she's full of fire and all these things. (laughs) And, you know, what do we do with her? What do we do? And my my grandma was like, just put her in something and make her dance and put her in theater and things like that. And my mom, when my grandmother passed away, my mom told me, she said, your grandmother told me to do this. She said, she told me to do this. So I'm going to do it now. And it changed my life. And look at where I am today. Yeah, now you're starring in, in the Tina Turner musical. Yeah. <laughs> well, Naomi, thank you so much for taking the time out to chat. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we're looking thank forward you. to having you in Spokane. Thank you so much for having me. That was Naomi Rogers, who plays the lead role in Tina, the Tina Turner musical, which opens next Tuesday, September 19th, at the First Interstate Center for the Arts. That run continues through September 23rd as part of the Best of Broadway series. Tickets and more information are available at broadwayspokane.com. This has been the Thursday Arts Preview, a show that keeps an eye on the past, present, and future of the arts scene throughout the Inland Northwest. And just to note that we will return to our interviews with the most recent round of Spokane Arts Grant Award recipients next week. For Spokane Public Radio, I'm E.J. Ionelli.